The time is summer July 1996, and after a tragic accident, Frank Bannister, played by Michael J. Fox, uses his new psychic powers on his three ghost business partners, Cyrus, Stewart, and the Judge, to con people into exercising their house. But when an evil spirit appears, placing numbers on the foreheads to its next victims, Frank may be the only one that can stop the Reaper that kills both the living and the dead in The Frighteners. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, two titans of cinematic review. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always captivating. Your host Antonio of the Cult-Worthy Cinema Podcast and Justin Henson of The Movie Wire are here to take you back to the balcony. And welcome to this week's edition of Back to the Balcony. Before Lord of the Rings and before The Hobbit and before King Kong and early Peter Jackson who gave us such bold stories and unique taste of cinema with some cult classics such as Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, Heavenly Creatures, and of course, Dead Alive. He brought his next idea that was meant for a Tales from the Crypt episode that turned into what would be his first big commercial film, The Frighteners. But we're not here to discuss just Peter Jackson. As always on the show, we are going to start by having a fantastic discussion around the Frighteners, and then we're going to deep dive into the reviews of Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to give our thoughts on their opinions. Then we will review their review. Antonio will always be covering Gene Siskel, and I will be covering Roger Ebert. So let's let's just jump right into it. Antonio, you know The Frighteners is a movie that I've always had in my back pocket for a discussion with you. And we rarely talk about these movies that we are going to discuss. So I am excited and I'm curious to hear your thoughts and just kind of jump right into it. Dude, you're going to freak out when I tell you how I first saw this movie. I can't wait. So for those of you who haven't listened to my show or some of my discussions, I was kind of a wannabe often on child teenage actor here in Utah back in the 90s. Did some commercials, did a lot of theater, professional theater. But one of the things I always had the opportunity to do from like age 12 to 15 was I was friends with some of the casting people for the Sundance Film Institute. And so I was able to do script readings for some of the Sundance indie films during the filmmaker's lab. And uh, one of the ones I got to do was for the film of Brothers Kiss. I got to do a script read for that. Um, there was a film that was never produced called Delia that was really, really great script. Christina Ricci was also in that table read. So that was pretty cool. But I was in the, oh, what was it? It was the demo version of Slums of Beverly Hills that Tamara oh, no Jenkins directed. And I was 14, but they had me play the nine-year-old Ricky (laughs) in the demo version of that film. I've tried to find it online, never found it. Um, I've never talked to Tamara Jenkins after it, but she seemed okay with my performance. But here's the cool part about that is we did the scene in the Sizzler, right? That was the scene that we shot, but we shot it in just one of the dining rooms at the Sundance uh, Resort. Made it look like a Sizzler. And because the film lab is just full of just, you know, different actors, directors, people, uh, there were people that just wanted to be extras for the day because they had nothing better to do. So an extra in that scene was Alfred Molina, who I got to speak with throughout the day for several days of that shoot. Dominic Chianese from The Sopranos. He actually played the Alan Arkin part for that part. And at the end of the day, in the screening room next to the lodge, they screened The Frighteners. So I got to watch it with these people. So that was my experience. Not a very big screen, mind you. It's like, you know, maybe a, a 8 by 14 screen, a very small screening room. But that was my experience of seeing the film. I had no clue who Peter Jackson was. I think I had seen Heavenly Creatures, or at least part of it, but didn't know Meet the Feebles yet. Didn't know Bad Taste yet. Didn't know Dead Alive yet. So this really kind of was like my first introduction to who Peter Jackson was and who he would be. And absolutely loved it, man. Like, how can you not, as a horror fan and as an avant-garde director fan, 
not like this movie. That is a way better story than when I was introduced to the Frighteners, so <laughs> I should have gone first. <laughs> so, in contrary, I was a huge Peter ja Jackson fan because my first Peter Jackson film was Meet the Feebles, and it was introduced by, when I was working at the theater, or no, prior to that, um, a guy named Brad, we used to go to Scarecrow Video down in Seattle. It has a lot of un unfound movies, right? Yeah. And he put this movie in my hand and says, you need to watch this. This will just change your life in the most obscure way. And he was right. It was the most uncomfortable, disgusting, just unique cinema experience I've ever ever felt watching a movie and it just is one of those movies that makes you feel horrible but i had to see everything else that he did right and i was a huge peter jackson nut so when the frighteners was announced this was my anticipated movie of the year this is the one i couldn't wait for to see a peter jackson movie just not on a tv in my home but on the big screen so we had probably about 12 of us that I just kind of handed Meet the Feebles to over the years. And we went and we saw it. And this was, it didn't disappoint. This one was one of my favorite just popcorn movies of the year. This was entertainment. It was special effects. It had everything that an adolescent teen would just eat up in the movie theater. So this one, when I say... I couldn't wait to discuss this with you. And I was right. hoping this would be your answer because this one holds true to my heart of one of the movies I go to when I think of my childhood. Well, and yeah, and also there is something about this film that really speaks to what someone with talent that's already been proven on a low budget can actually do with a budget. Because sometimes... I think people shoot their wad too early when they get money. Robert Rodriguez is a perfect example of that for me. Yeah. Like my favorite Robert Rodriguez films are the ones where he had no money. And then when you give him money, yes, he's still very frugal and he still knows how to do it with a budget, but that's when he gets a little too dependent on special effects, CGI, green screen. And that's kind of what he's become known for. Almost like the, the poor man's James Cameron in a way. If, if I had to like make that comparison, but there was definitely something I recognized in The Frighteners early on, and that was the DNA of Sam Raimi films. And then when I went and saw Dead Alive and Meet the Feebles, but Dead Alive especially, you could definitely see that, oh, this is a guy who really respects what Sam Raimi is doing in the terms of like a kinetic energy with the camera, a lot of zooms and swish pans and a lot of gore. You know, it was almost him taking his own personal New Zealand flair and applying it to the, the Sam Raimi DNA. And that's definitely evident here. But like I said, this time he gets a budget. But we'll probably get into this in the next part of the conversation. This is also a love letter to B cinema based off of its casting, based off of its its content, its subject matter, and even its music. You know, Danny Elfman doing the score here, but not sounding like a traditional Danny Elfman score. And that's another thing that I liked about this movie is that you're seeing a lot of talent doing things that people weren't necessarily comfortable with them doing. Michael J. Fox, especially. Yeah, and Peter Jackson is known for having some obscure vision of casting, his the way he treats his talent. Um, this one was a very obscure movie because it wasn't an R rating. It, it he had He was intending for this to be kind of what you're talking about which is kind of like a mild b movie kind of feel to it because this originally was going to be pg-13 mm -hmm. um and when they kept pushing it to r that's when he brought out the in inner peter jackson and said i'm just going to add some shit in and make this a a really hard r but you take a lot of the atmosphere that we see from Raimi and even burton you get that feel from this movie and that could be because of the danny elfman score but it's almost a Tim Burton-esque when it comes to its characters because there are unique characters to it. When we talk about, we'll get into it, but the Milton character, mm -hmm. uh, the unique comic relief of the ghost, the, even down to the vehicles, you take Michael J. Fox's car that just screams kind of an old-time Tim Burton feel and even a Raimi to an extent. There are little, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you 100% in talking about the cast. 
talking about how these characters, you're not supposed to know where you're at, right? Like the atmosphere of this movie, it's all filmed in New Zealand. And if you know New Zealand, it's very obvious, but they make it feel like an American city. But all the characters just seem enough out of place. The locale is so exotic and the themes are so unique when it comes to the horror and the comedy that it doesn't really feel like it's of this world. And that's what I like about it. You're in Peter Jackson's world now. And the things that I've read, especially from our two respective critics that, you know, had a lot to say about this movie, I think that's one of the things that they didn't get. They didn't get the the joke. They didn't get the vibe and the theme and the world that Peter Jackson was trying to create. And that's where I think where if you do have the retention for cinema that's not based off of awards or box office or clout like Roger and Gene really like to talk about, then you're not allowing yourself the mental capacity and state to enjoy something that's going to take you out of your comfort zone like this. Yeah, totally agree. And what I think is really, I I hate using the word, but it it's accurate is going to be the magic of the Peter Jackson is that his style is, you can never pinpoint exactly a shot from Peter Jackson, a wide angle shot that most directors feel their comfort to. He utilizes props and characters as his signature. And when we take the frighteners, when you first watch it, it didn't remind me of Peter Jackson because he's bending his eye for the story. He's bending his eye for the characters. And this is what makes this film really unique to that is this is the one Peter Jackson movie that kind of stands. I don't want to say above the rest, but when it comes to the technicality of it, it's a Peter Jackson unique film. He really bends to that atmosphere and he really bends to even the music. And with Danny Elfman's score to it, it's not a memorable score. He utilizes that score with the actions of the characters and the action mm. of what we're seeing on screen with the special effects. Both of these talents between Elfman and Jackson really complement each other to really create something, a holistic story and an environment. So speaking of environment, I think one of the things that I feel sometimes bothers me, but not to the point where it kills my love for this movie, is that if you think about from where his first film, Bad Taste, starts and everything up into this film, it's very regionally specific. It is New Zealand. New Zealand to a fault. In fact, I probably learned more about New Zealand culture from Peter Jackson movies than I have like in any other source of media, you know, except for maybe Xena Warrior Princess. But this one feels a little off sometimes because this is Peter Jackson writing along with his partner Fran writing a film that's supposed to be American therefore there are some American cliches that I feel are too heavy-handed for example Chi McBride's character you know this 70s disco guy a lot of his dialogue is a little bit too on the nose and stereotypical which that's the funny thing is like for us American viewers we might take that a little too on the nose where it's more flavorful for New Zealanders of like, oh, this is how Americans talk. This is how Americans are. I also think that uh, some of the casting and, and dialogue too, it's almost him like making a facade or a farcical view of what he thinks American culture is because this is supposed to be an American story. Um, I don't really hate it, but it's the one thing that kind of takes me out of the the Peter Jackson world because everything else that he does is so, even Lord of the Rings, it, it feels very New Zealand specific. You don't know what Middle Earth was really like, but if you're a, a nerd and you read the books, he's really just, you know, turning New Zealand and its culture into Middle Earth. He's creating Middle Earth for us, for a lot of people that didn't even know what it was. They just knew of The Hobbit. They knew of the Lord of the Rings novels. So that's, I could say, like, my one small complaint is the oversimplification of American culture in the script and in the dialogue. But like I said, it's not enough to make me turn my nose up at the film. Yeah, I can see that. And what really popped in my head on that vision is going to be 
the stereotype that he actually got from these characters, like he pulled them from a movie. You know, you have the stereotypical nerd, Stuart. You have mm-hmm. uh, Cyrus, of course, from the 70s. Mm-hmm. You have the judge, the gun toting uh, Western. Uh, so it's like these characters popped right out of a movie that symbolizes something for Peter Jackson in American cinema. But that's just me theorizing when it comes down to it. But there is a, a piece of it that doesn't date well, but at the same time, it's almost like a love letter to culture prior to that film. Yeah. Um, where we look at those symbol- symbolic characters. With me, I, I think the biggest fault in the movie um, is not seeing enough of those characters. Is I think kind of going into it, we don't get enough screen time with them, um, especially with the love that we kind of build um, with the actions that they do for a Baxter. I agree with that. But at the same time, I do have, I enjoy the fact that he is essentially taking Badlands, you know, he's taking the uh, Starkweather murders and essentially transplanting them into this film with D. Wallace Stone and Jake Busey's characters, which great performances by both probably some of the best performances of the decade by the two of those performers where I think it does get a little rough for me though. I think the, the biggest uh, faux pas is the use of Arlie Ermey essentially doing his full metal jacket routine word for word in the same costume. Uh, It does seem like it's a little bit of a a cheap play. And and again, like I said, I'm just carrying along that same point I was making before, but I think that is like the apex of, of the point I was trying to make of like, he really is just kind of dogging American cinema and American culture in these, not with any disrespect, you know, obviously he enjoys these movies. He enjoys these characters and that's why he's essentially emulating them in this role. And that is, like I said, the one thing that I think a lot of critics had a problem with, even though this film was mostly favored by a lot of critics, but it's hard and, and Ebert, definitely says it in his review where there are times where I feel like the film doesn't know what it wants to be, or it leans too heavy into certain things at like the wrong time. Is it a comedy? Is it suspense? Is it a horror film? Is it an action film? I think it does all of those things quite well. I just think that sometimes it's timing is off when it decides to push heavier into some of those moments. So I can see when he says those things about the film I get where he's coming from, but again, he's not looking at it as a work of a filmmaker who loves movies. He's just looking at it as a guy who made a movie. Yeah, and I think when it gets into the second half of it, we start to see kind of that breakdown where it's almost a contradiction to the first half. And that's kind of where my main issue is. I think the ghost should have gone further into that to maybe balance that out. Right. But we go into the second half and you take Busey's character and the second half bugged me a tad because it just reminded me of Shocker with Mm -hmm. Gary Busey and then you have Jake Busey and then it's almost like that action chasing that, that we get at towards the end of it. And it's a little chaotic to it. And I think it's a little off par of what we got in the beginning. And that's where we see that uh, contradiction where we don't know what it's really trying to be. It goes from kind of this ghost sci-fi action comedy to just pure action. And to Ebert and Gene's point, kind of looks dirty. It, It looks ugly towards the end. And at least we had that vibrant environment and the comic relief to lighten the load in the first half to kind of balance that out. Yeah, but I wouldn't want it to change. That's that's the other thing, too, is I, I like it the yeah. way it is. If it was as mean as uh, Gene says it is, uh, it wouldn't be as fun or memorable. It really would just be like a dark, fast-paced, supernatural horror film with... A different lead other than Michael J. Fox, maybe that would work. And they make fun of Michael J. Fox in this. He's like, why is he choosing films like this? Which sadly, this was his last starring role in a feature film. So we never really got to see anything after that. But for what the film is, I think that casting goes really, really, really well. It's someone that can tell a joke, have the charm, have the charisma, but also have the acting chops to portray the scenes of fear anger, terror, uh, it it all kind of works, you know, that you can't have a very strong masculine lead 
in this role. It wouldn't be believable. Yet you can't have a Jim Carrey in there either. You can't have someone who's not serious enough. So when they kind of pick on his acting skills in this, it kind of bugs me because I feel like that really was like the right guy for the part. A hundred percent. He does a fantastic job, especially coming out of his element. I know uh, Peter Jackson, that was his guy. That's who he wanted. Um, but they did have a backup. And it's funny that you brought that because Danny DeVito was actually at one point, if Fox turned it down, was in consideration for it, which is kind of an odd choice. But he does a fantastic job. And when we go to our previous points of the love of cinema, um, we look at a lot of these characters that just scream also stereotypical other characters. We yeah. take Milton that looks like a George McFly that if you went back in time would join the occult. You have <laughs> the the Biff Tanning character that's just the overall jock. So there's a lot of little snippets in there that just reminds the viewer of having fun and where this movie actually originated from. And that's what I really appreciate about that is that with a big budget, they utilize the effects, but they actually make it count towards the characters to ensure that that nostalgia goes into the viewer. Yeah, I agree. And on the special effects note, I honestly do think, though, that this was really a Petri dish of Peter Jackson's Weta special effects that would later on go to do Lord of the Rings and King Kong and many other films. You know, up until this point, they really weren't doing a lot with CGI. You know, he did some amazing practical effects in Dead Alive and especially in the fantasy scenes in Heavenly Creatures like I don't think people realize how fantastical Heavenly Creatures really is. When you go back and watch it, and they're in their their kingdom that they've made out of clay, and the clay figurines come to life, or the Orson Welles or the Mario Puzo characters that come out, like there is a lot of great practical effects in a film that's not really even considered a fantasy. It's considered like a crime thriller, right? So yeah. this was a chance for them to show off what they were really doing in New Zealand. Because you really did not see a lot of New Zealand filmmakers like Jane Campion. That's pretty much the only one I could name, Lee Tamahori. But until Peter Jackson, no one really knew a lot of New Zealand directors or filmmakers. And now I feel like New Zealand filmmakers are kind of associated with this quirky sci fi horror aspect that uh, Peter Jackson's kind of grown. I mean, look at uh, the guys that did Saw. You know, they're Aussie and New Zealand together. It's an interesting thing that they are now kind of considered the masters of horror of this generation. And we had Peter Jackson kind of pave the way for that. Yeah, and we look at the almost the originality or the origin, if you will, of computer animation. I mean, they really do show it off in this movie. Um, and at times it could be a little too in your face where they, you know, they're showing off of, Hey, look what I can do. Right, and right. Ebert points that out in a couple different scenes in his episode review. And we kind of can pinpoint that, but the importance, if we look at just film history on how important this movie was to stepping stones to Lord of the Rings, because the company, I think it's Weta, I, I think is yeah. Jackson's company started at one computer for the Frighteners, went to 35, and his next project was, what am I going to do for 35 computers? And the first thing that popped into his head was Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. So there's an importance to this, is the Frighteners turned out to be the stepping stones to the Lord of the Rings films by Jackson. So there's huge depth to the Frighteners when it comes to the Peter Jackson's growth as a director, um, mostly banking off of Lord of the Rings, but the Frightener should be a spotlight of how he handled the special effects in the beginning, which is absolutely stunning for that time. And I think that's one of the major downfalls of, of Peter Jackson in the last, let's say, 15 years is that, you know, this was a perfect mid-level, mid-budget movie there. I thought that the special effects did not outweigh the action of the performances and then after Lord of the Rings, I mean, he just kept trying to top himself, right? You know, King Kong, as as much as I enjoy some of the performances in it, it is masturbatory to every sense of like, this is what I'm going to do now. Uh, Brontosaurus Stampede is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in any movie. Um, I, I just, I can't get over that whole scene in that movie. But then after that criticism, he does the lovely bones where he tries and returns 
back to the same kind of vibe he was trying to present with Heavenly Creatures, and it just doesn't work because he's already been this guy who's doing all the special effects movies now, you know? So it, I don't think that we're done with the evolution of Peter Jackson. I just feel that he is deciding how he wants to represent himself now that he's like seriously gone up and down the gambit of, of cinema doing those movies and lovely bones and then doing the Hobbit movies, which he really even didn't want to do, you know, and it's apparent on screen that he didn't want to do those. So yeah, it's an, it's an interesting journey for this filmmaker, but uh, I, I would say in my humble opinion that dead alive is probably his most enjoyable work for me heavenly creatures is his most poignant and probably the best when it comes to cinematic quality and this one is the one that got away yeah and we got to look at when the movie came out this one you have all the elements when making the movie that take some gambles take some risks but it works and the ones participating on this know it works including jack jackson himself but this movie came out at the wrong time. It went up against Independence Day. It was a summer movie, which should have been a Halloween movie. Yeah. And it was apps and it bombed at the box office because it was stupidity of the release date. This movie could have been something bigger, potentially, if it had the right elements. And we had the what the Olympics going on at that time as well. So there is a lot going against this movie that was out of the internal control of the actual creators and filmmakers. But everything that Jackson pulled together had the so crazy it works vibe to it that it could have potentially done well in the box office. I think one of the things that Jackson does really well in his earlier movies, uh, you can't count the Lord of the Rings because he didn't write those characters, but is creating characters. Like he and Fran Walsh create amazing characters. Uh, Dead Alive, every character in that has a purpose, from the priest to the uncle to the grandma to the you know the the girl whose dad owns the fish store like everything with those characters works and in this one he does something very similar where let's say most of the speaking characters are all very memorable you know Chi McBride and the guy the nerd guy they are very memorable the judge is very memorable um i'd say the most memorable character of the film though is probably Dammers played by Jeffrey Combs and that is a performance that I don't think a lot of people got because not a lot of people have seen enough Stuart Gordon movies with Jeffrey Combs to understand that that's what this guy does, you know? And in fact, it's not George McFly. They're trying to make him look like they gave him the Hitler haircut. They asked for the Hitler haircut. They wanted it to be very off putting where you're like, okay, I recognize what this guy is, but do I, my mom, when she saw this movie with me, she thought it was Jim Carrey. I'm like, no, it's not Jim Carrey, mom. But I get why you would think that because he is very manic and out of control, but also oddly like restrained too. Um, again, I think that's a performance that went over a lot of people's heads because it was making an homage to something that probably not a lot of people knew about. Well, not only that, but that character is strategically placed. I know Jeffrey Combs helped design that character as well, but... We have the danger in the paranormal element. He's the danger in the real-time element. And it, they try and make him like this nerdy, just weak character. But he is absolutely dangerous because he is unpredictable. You don't right. know what he's going to do next. And he adds that sense of mystery on where it's going to end up and how he's going to play into the climax. It's a creative but strategic character. And I think that was almost a character that was developed throughout the production beyond the design, because as we see his character progression, he gets nuttier and nuttier. And it's almost like a light switch in the second half where he opens up his uh, shirt to release the lead vest. And he just goes <laughs> completely bonkers where it's almost like a villain reveal. And mm. it, he almost outshadows the Reaper in the movie at one point. You know, and that is one of the things that I've always thought that was kind of uh, interesting with the movie is that they really hold on a long time to that reveal of who the Death Reaper really is. You know, they tease it when she's watching like that hard copy video of, you know, like essentially what are the Starkweather mur murders, uh, carving the heads in the hospital and, and Johnny Bartlett getting electrocuted. And that is one of the things that I, I like to think 
think that Jake Busey, the nineties were his, like, I really like think to like nineties were his between this film and enemy of the state and starship troopers uh, and PCU, you know, he's the hippie hit the bong. Uh, That was his decade. And I've been watching him on Instagram for a while just saying, Hey man, I'm part of that club that Hollywood forgot about. You know, I'm here. I can act. I'm ready to go, but no one's calling. And that's such a shame because if this movie had been a bigger box office draw, he's a really good villain. And he looks just enough like his dad and channels enough of that mania to, to like really kind of feed that picture's uh, antagonistic vibe, the meanness that Cisco was talking about. And it's just a shame. And like I said, that reveal came too late. I would have loved to see more of that character developed through the film until, you know, being revealed in the last 20 minutes. Because at that point, really, it is just a chase. And you don't get enough of that character's uh, wants and desires and needs. Instead, it's played through D. Wallace Stone's character. But again, her performance is so good that you really don't care. But damn it, I really like Jake Busey in this movie. Yeah, I did too. And I think they were banking a lot on D. Wallace's character. I think they were banking on giving little hints throughout the movie of uh, Patricia on how she plays into it. I think they, not to insult the viewer, but I think they gave the audience too much credit that they anticipated that they're going to be involved somehow and two plus two is going to equal four with the uh, tying in the Jake Busey character. But I agree. I think it came in a little too little too late because when we finally get the reveal, the reveal was a little let down in the graveyard where it wasn't a huge focal point of the movie. And that was one of the moments that didn't really shock me. I kind of knew that was going to happen, but I was looking for how they were going to present it and the how I wasn't wowed by. It was kind of creepy, but at the same time, it was a letdown for me on that. But it didn't ruin the experience whatsoever. I just wanted to see what the resolve and the what resolve was going to happen during the climax. Agreed. And you and I have talked about the cast already before we started recording. You know, so Jay Fox obviously does exactly what he needs to do. Uh, Trini Alvarado, I'm a huge fan. You know, again, this is someone that was just kind of put into movies where they just needed a person, maybe not a big name, maybe like a, a B-list, C-lister but I've always enjoyed the roles that she was in. You know, she's great in Little Women. Uh, She's great in this TV movie from the early 80s called uh, Dreams Don't Die. Uh, It's about graffiti taggers. And then uh, she was, I think, 13 or 14 years old. She did that movie Times Square, uh, where she's like the runaway girl who starts a punk band in New York. And Tim Curry is a DJ who kind of helps them bring their antisocial message to it. Uh, Again, like, I've always enjoyed her. And to see her in this, I I think it's a great character for her because it doesn't need to be a bankable name because Michael J. Fox is the bankable name, but you're invested in her and you're invested in her emotional journey and her connections with the characters in the film, especially her husband. And I talked about this, Peter Dobson. I love this guy. You said he had Biff Tannen energy, which I totally agree with, but this guy, like I've seen him in so many things. I grew up watching him on Miami Vice And then he was in Michael Mann's original version of Heat. He played the Val Kilmer character of Krisha Hairless. And I thought he was great in that. Kind of sad he wasn't in the actual remake. But then he was on this show on USA back in like the late 90s called Cover Me. Did you ever watch that show? Where he was. No, I missed that one. Him and his family are in the witness protection program, right? So it, it kind of had like a burn notice vibe to it, except it was a witness protection. And he was great in that too. I've always liked this guy when he pops up and stuff. So to see him in this role, he plays it just perfectly. Like he's the total flaky, like you said, former jock. Like this is a guy who's five years away from being Al Bundy, right? That's what this character is. <laughs> you saw that when he uh, got upset over his lawn gnomes, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. So, big jock picking up lawn gnomes. Yeah. I mean, between the two, between Alvarado and uh, Dobson, I think these two balance each other off really well. Now, Alvarado, I think, was a good choice for the role because she has almost a recognizable face because she's almost a spitting image of Andy McDowell. Yeah, I was um, going to say that too. Kind of, yeah. And so the name, for the longest time, I could have sworn it was Andy McDowell. Um, but her performance is that of the same style. So she really adds that. But what really makes this work is between uh, Dobson and Alvarado's character when he's actually dead and 
we're finding out all these built up energy of uh, kind of a subtle regret between the two characters. It's almost like uh, closing the business before he passes on almost like right. he ha- Michael J. Fox is giving all this information so both parties can kind of move on. Only you don't want to root for this guy, but you kind of selfishly do. He's kind of a, I liked him as a ghost because he actually feels a regret after he's dead. And he has a little bit of empathy a little bit. And you see almost a human side, even as a ghost, when he uh, portrays that character. So they're almost two different characters. And Dobson plays both versions extremely well. And you forgot to mention my favorite Dobson movie, which is Sing. You'll probably (laughs) disagree with me on that one. Uh, A little bit. (laughs) Now, (laughs) we've also got John Astin the original Gomez Adams as the judge. And I hate to say it, but I've always thought that this character was a little bit of a ripoff of Gramps from House 2. Like, it's pretty much the exact same costume, the exact same makeup, except with a little bit more Rick Baker, loose jaw action. I'm not saying that John Aston doesn't bring it, but that's what I've always gathered from this character. But it's fun. He gets the laughs. He gets the silly and we do have like an emotional investment in these ghosts that, you know, just because they're ghosts doesn't mean that they can't be destroyed by this, this entity, right? Like he can crush their ghost souls. So there is a lot of investment in those characters. We know that they are not immortal. They are not. Beetlejuice kind of does the same thing too, where it's like there's death for the dead and you don't really think about that until you see it. Yeah, yeah. With these ghosts, there's nothing I like more in a movie than having that hero element after its earned emotion of really liking those characters, of the filmmakers really designing those characters good. And we have the scene with Cyrus fighting off the ghost to protect uh, Michael J. Fox. And um, that moment is that hero moment for me where it feels good, but the result of what happens doesn't. These ghosts, even with their arguments, there's still a resolve and there's still a family element to it. But this is what makes that likability. This is what I think Siskel and Ebert really missed on it is the actual chemistry between it. You might not see it in the beginning and they might be treated so almost like special effect props, but it's a gradual relationship that definitely has a payoff that really gets you right in the gut and it gets you in the heart to see the ending result. Even to the climax that actually made me shed a little bit of a tear to see him back. Well, now that we've gotten to that point, let's hear what Gene and Roger had to say about this. The movie starts as a sort of Ghostbusters comedy, turns into a horror film, and ends up as an action picture, and it isn't very good at any one of those things. As it begins, Michael J. Fox is the local Ghostbuster who gets a lot of business, mainly because he works with three real ghosts who drum up business for him. Watching this movie, I had one overwhelming feeling. They went to an enormous amount of trouble for very little payoff. The Frighteners was directed by Peter Jackson, who made Heavenly Creatures, that movie about the two young New Zealand girls who become murderers after being seduced by the fantasy world that they create. This movie is a big step back. So one of the things they do is they pick about the special effects in this movie, like how it's only riding on its special effects. Like they talk about the special effects nearly every sentence. And we've seen them do this before, like you've mentioned in previous episodes that Siskel just had a thing for movies that were special effects heavy. He had a thing for sci-fi horror films. Like he he was more of a purist when it came to cinema. He thought that these films were more like candy than they were actual films. Yeah, and we also look at the he also was a big in-depth guy. I we spoke to it in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He likes some thought. He wants things explained. And I think his biggest problem with this film is we have the topic of afterlife. um, We have the topic of death and they don't really focus too much on that other than what we're told. So, and he's using the special effects as a bank, as an excuse of that utilizing screen time to take away from the thought provoking things this film could have been. If I had, if I, if I, know him well enough from his writings. This is kind of what I portray him as is he's focusing on the special effects because that's the most dominant piece of the movie. That's the one thing the movie's really banking on to kind of fill seats, if you will. That's the, Mm. that's the get, that's the catch to get people into theater seats. This, this picture really bothered me because it was ugly. It was mean. I don't know what Michael J. Fox is doing with his career in this picture, 
Did he think this was sort of being hip? It's like a good guy went to the other side and mm -hmm. aligned himself with the forces of evil. And, the, and what I mean by forces of evil, I'm just talking about this unhappy uh, cutting up of people and, mm -hmm. and deformity. Uh, it was unpleasant. So, <laughs> I mean, mean and ugly, that is such a superficial way to put this film. And it makes me wonder sometimes where, like, you know, there's some times where you and I will watch a movie, especially you, when you're watching these things in the theater and you're taking your notes. And I feel sometimes you, if you're not enjoying the experience or if you've gone in with a certain predisposition of what that film is and it's not meeting that predisposition, you kind of zone out of what the film's actually giving you and you're just observing what's on the surface. So if he just kind of gave up on the story, if, if it wasn't what he was thinking it was going to be, and so every time he'd look up from his notebook or from his his raisinettes or whatever it was he was watching, eating when he's watching this in the screening room, if he's just seeing the superficial stuff, like the death scenes and the murder scenes, and, and like you said, some of our heroes being laid waste, well then, yeah, I guess it does feel mean and ugly. But to me, that also means that he wasn't paying attention to what the film really was about. Yeah, he... There's a lot of just tonal relation to that. And we've discussed this before on the show, too, because this one was probably their most thumbs down episode of the year. I mean, oh my God, two of yeah. these movies ended up on two of these movies in this episode ended up on Gene's top 10 worst movies of the year. I mean, we had Multiplicity, which is one of my most hated movies ever made. Um, we have Kazam. We have Fled. Um, so we've talked about that where we get in that zone and uh, I've been there too, where we just zone out to the point we're just expecting another bad movie. And that could have been a case here where every single movie here was a thumbs down with the exception of, I think, one movie that Ebert gave a thumbs up to. Right. So I think the expectation of the summer blockbuster, and remember, these two uh, critics, their summer wasn't their best time. They weren't looking forward necessarily to the summer because this is the summer blockbuster. So yeah. they had an expectation almost set. And this was in July. So right smack dab in the middle of summer blockbuster. So I think their expectations were a little off on what they were going to get, especially with Peter Jackson behind the wheel with his previous works being heavenly creatures, which obviously they were in favor of. They both liked that yeah. movie. So maybe that is another reason why they gave this such a harsh critique is because you know, maybe that was their boy and he let them down. It's like, oh, you're going to make Heavenly Creatures and then you're going to make this after it, you know? Yeah. No, 100%. Not pleasant to look at. No. It's not interesting to follow. It doesn't go anywhere. No. And it's not about anything. No, it is it's a like mean a, You picture. know what it is? like a demo reel for special effects. You could show this to somebody to show what you could do if you wanted to get a job. My point is that Michael J. Fox has allied himself previously with good entertainment Mm -hmm. This is junk. That's my least favorite thing about this particular critique is Ebert saying that it's not about anything. Like, what movie was he watching? <laughs> yeah, and to me, there is a lot of elements, but it, it's almost a huge contradiction because you almost have to pay that much more attention to get all the details of what it's trying to do right. or what it's trying to provide the audience. So, and you talked about Gene uh, just calling it ugly and just giving vague uh, points to it. Eber's doing the same thing, only he's hooked on the it doesn't cover anything. So uh, there is a lot that these two really missed. But I think holistically, this is one that I wish they would have revisited uh, just for the mere fact that to see how well it aged. So right. I think it still stands true. But I think Ebert said it in his review that he saw what, a nine-hour documentary on the Mongolian yak herdsman, um, <laughs> and he'd rather see that again. So, um, But I think they got it wrong, and their, their expectations were too, too high on it. Do you think that also another reason why they're so harsh in this film is because they feel like Michael J. Fox made a mistake by taking this picture? Like, I feel like they're taking a lot of the energy out on Michael J. Fox deciding to do this movie. You know, and here's the thing, is that his career in the early to mid nineties wasn't necessarily fantastic. Right. You know, he had done dog Hollywood, which is like a favorite of some people. I think it's fine. Life with Mikey, uh, the, the, um, 
ooh, for love or money. You know, he had done films that weren't necessarily hated by critics, but they weren't big money makers, and he never really captured the energy that he was able to capture in the '80s and Back to the Future and Teen Wolf and 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 those films. So I almost feel like they are more disappointed in Michael J. Fox than they are in this movie. That's kind of how I read some of it. I totally get that because if we go to Gene's point where, again, it looks ugly, they're seeing a new side of Michael J. Fox. And in all honesty, I think that's a cheap shot on why he would be in a movie like this. Guess what? He's testing his range. I applaud him for doing that. Right. Um, But I think it's, again, that comparison of what they've seen from him in the past. He's not... Uh, taking care of an orphan kid. He's not a hotel concierge. He's not looking for uh, love. He's not going back to the future. All these movies are complete polar opposites to what he's doing now. And I think by comparison, that almost amplifies what they would call an ugly looking film or a nasty looking film. So I think, again, they're comparing a lot to this movie and they had to set expectations. I think Michael J. Fox did a fantastic job for what he is. He added Mm -hmm. just enough quirkiness, but at the same time, just enough seriousness to really get the character. I also feel that this is a film that's definitely made for and of the 90s. I really don't see this film faring much better if it was made in the 2010s or in this last decade, because I feel everything is kind of rooted in when the time it's made. And again, it's source material and the vibe it was going for. I mean, it was supposed to be a Tales from the Crypt episode, you know, and that's one of the things I've heard a lot of people say is that it should have stayed uh, a Tales from the Crypt episode. And I don't know. I mean, maybe that's why it does feel kind of dated in the way it plays. But again, I don't think it's a detriment to the movie. To me, I don't think it's dated in my point of view. I think to your point earlier, some of the characters might be dated and some of the dialogue absolutely might be dated. But I think when it comes to the actual storytelling of it, the actual special effects, the actual character design, I think the elements and even even to the editing and the design of the Reaper, which is absolutely stunning in my opinion, I think for that time, the Reaper was terrifying in just his overall movement. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a lot of elements here that still holds true, but I think when it comes down to um, the actual ghost that you sp- you spoke to, it doesn't really hold true. But I think if this was made today, this would have been a spectacle of all sorts, even more so than what we Ebert spoke to earlier. So I think it was came out at the right time. I think it came out in the ro- wrong month, but the right, right year time. it came out, yeah. especially with them. And this is where creators were at their peak because they were experimenting with computer uh, graphics. They had mm-hmm. to actually work to actually get a shot right instead of just using either AI or just stuff they've already done in the past to just slop it on a computer and there it is on screen. They had to work and actually create back then. So let's go ahead and take this chance to critique the critiques. Now, since you are the movie wire and you do stars where I do A letters and B letters and C letters, what is your critique of your critic? I am going to go with probably two stars on this one. Um, I think he did a safe review. I think he Mm -hmm. added some detail to what he felt. Um, I think that was a big piece of it, even though I think a lot of it wasn't backed up with any true exact facts or examples um, relating to the story or characters. And I would have loved to see more of what the problem was with the special effects other than there was too much of it or they were just showing off. So I think he did an okay job feeling and speaking the passion of what he felt about it, but I don't think it deserved the rating that he, he gave it for sure. I think it was a fair assessment too, because he also did write an article on this film. He gave it one star in his paper and really went into depth on why. And one of the things I actually kind of liked, one of the ways he explained his position is he says, the Frighteners is a film like that, a film that compels me to break my resolution, never to quote Shakespeare's full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So he's really telling us how he feels and he's eloquent by using a quote to do it. So I appreciate that, even though I disagree with his critique, I appreciate that he actually took the time to put the words in 
to let us understand why he felt that way, where Siskel didn't even review it at all. Like, there's zero Siskel reviews anywhere to be found for this particular thing other than on this. So for that, I give him one and a half stars because he doesn't tell us why. He decides to use uh, adjectives and nouns of describing the picture aesthetically and why he doesn't like it aesthetically. But he doesn't give us the insight onto why he feels that way. Everything is based off of appearance. Nothing is based on substance. And for a guy that's always looking for substance in movies, it bugs me that he's not giving us substance in his critique. And that almost plays into kind of what you were speaking to earlier. If uh, he was actually paying attention to the detail of the movie, um, or if he had enough to actually fill the 500 words to 1,000 words to describe how he felt about the movie. Right. So, I mean, if we look at the two movies that made his top 10 in that show for worst movies, that one wasn't on it, and he spoke very negatively about it, like it was the worst movie of the year. <laughs> right. <laughs> Any last words you have to say on The Frighteners, my friend? Nope. If you haven't seen it, I would take a take a look and especially take a look at some of Peter Jackson's early work. I agree. Like this is definitely, I think, the one Peter Jackson movie that a lot of people probably don't remember because newer generations are only going to remember him from Lord of the Rings up. And then Gen Xers and like early millennials like us are really going to talk about Dead Alive probably more than anything or Meet the Feebles if you're a deviant like we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a great conversation on this. So next week, we'll be talking about whew, the 1980 film Seems Like Old Times from the Neil Simon plays starring Charles Grodin, starring Goldie Hawn, and starring Chevy Chase. I'm excited for this one, man, because I have not seen it since I was like 14 or 15. But it was a childhood favorite, and... I did rewatch Foul Play in the last 10 years and liked it more than I did as a kid. So I'm going to see how this one holds up. But these guys didn't like it, and I want to see why. So that is next week's episode. If you guys want to go find it, it's um, on Tubi right now, and I think it's also on YouTube. So you can check that out. And when we have our discussion on it, you can see if you agree with us or not on how we assess our critics, Siskel and Ebert. Man, this was a great time. So I'm going to go ahead and tell people where they can find me, thecultworthy.com. Find all of my stuff. Listen to my shows, The Cultworthy Cinema Podcast, and The Milf and Me. Subscribe to the YouTube. Justin? You can find me, The Movie Wire, anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can check me out at moviewire.com and all of the socials at Movie Wire Show. And if you want to know our true assessments of the movie, you can check out our Letterboxd reviews on Letterboxd, and that is where you'll see our star rating. So I'm going to say goodnight to you, my friend, and we'll see you next week as we talk about scenes like old times. See you next week. <laughs>